today, I have the privilege of, uh, of finishing up this five-part series that we've been doing on mission uh, before we get back to 1 Samuel next week. Uh, before we get started, let's do a quick recap uh, of where we've gone the last four weeks on mission. Firstly, we learned that the mission of God is to make himself known to his creation and make his glory known to his people through the redemption of love accomplished by Jesus Christ. Next, the mission of the church is to make disciples by going into all the world and proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit and gathering those disciples into churches where they will be baptized and taught the commands of Christ, all for the glory of God. Amen? And then for the last two weeks, we've learned practically how this applies to church planting. And then last week when Meg spoke uh, to short-term missions. And today we come to our final sermon in this series, which is titled The Mercy and Mission. Friends, I don't know about you, but when I think about the the topic of, of mercy, a lot of different things come to my mind. Compassion, forgiveness, kindness, generosity, reconciliation, justice, humility, restoration, All of these things are good things, and there are many things that we could get into today. Last week, we heard from Compassion Canada, and I actually love their definition of mercy that they use, and and here it is. Mercy is the compassionate treatment of those in distress, especially when it is within one's power to punish or to harm them. The word mercy, which comes from medieval Latin, literally means price paid. So when you consider that Jesus paid the price for your sins, that can literally be defined as mercy. And for many of us, that's where our mind is immediately drawn to when we think of mercy, and and we should. We deserve the wrath. But instead, God sent his one and only son, Jesus, to die at Calvary so that we would receive undeserved mercy, a mercy that we will never truly comprehend. But it can be received if we turn from our wicked ways and follow Jesus. So what is our mission when it comes to the topic of mercy? And today I'm going to explore a few passages and examples that deal with this very subject. And I would highly encourage you to have your Bibles open or if you have your device uh, with your Bible app, uh, have it ready. Please don't just listen to what I'm saying. Follow along as we go through scripture. In the, in the screens behind me, um, there's going to be a growing list of, of scripture references that you can follow along and, and take notes as we, as we go along. So please feel free to do that. A few moments ago, Marion uh, read a passage from the Gospel of Matthew, uh, a conversation between Jesus and the Pharisees. Thank you, Marion, for reading that. Jesus says to the Pharisees, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And, and Jesus here is quoting Hosea 6 and, and likely Isaiah 1. And my hope for today is that we can spend some time diving into how this passage applies to us. And we'll use this specific conversation as a pivot for other passages that we're going to explore as well. So without further ado, let's get on with today's sermon. If you've ever had the opportunity to go through the entirety, and I mean the entirety of Scripture, you can't help but see that one of the major themes in the entire Scripture is around the topic of mercy and specifically God's care for the poor. In fact, there are over a hundred verses in the Bible 
that specifically address the topic of caring for the poor, it is absolutely unavoidable. Obviously, I don't have time to, to go through each and every one of those passages today, but if you would like them, you can come see me, and I'd be happy to, to email you a list of those 100, over 100 verses that talk about caring for the poor. Proverbs 21.13 says, Whoever closes his ear to the cry of the poor will himself call out and not be answered. Do you, know, do you know who that proverb is attributed to? That proverb is attributed to King Solomon, the man who was given more wisdom from God than any man alive at the time. He says that if you ignore the poor, do you know what you can expect? You can expect nothing. You will call out to God and he will not answer you. Think about that. Ezekiel 16, 49, behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and the needy. 1 John 3, 17, if anyone has the world's goods, yet sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? If you have a chance this afternoon, go read Isaiah 58, a nation that thinks that they're righteous. They're, they're offering all these legalistic sacrifices to God, but God calls them out for their lack of mercy. He demands mercy, not sacrifice. Any, any Jonathan Edwards fans here today? Put up your hand. I, I, yeah, there we go. I know there's a few of you. Don't be shy. For those of you that don't know who Jonathan Edwards is, Jonathan Edwards was a prolific preacher and, and theologian who lived in the 18th century. Anyways, Jonathan Edwards wrote one of the best pieces of literature that I have ever read in my life, a treatise in 1732 that he called The Duty of Charity to the Poor Explained and Enforced. In it, he starts by quoting Leviticus 25 and Deuteronomy 15, which reads as follows. If your brother becomes poor... And cannot maintain himself with you. You shall support him as though he were a stranger and a sojourner, and he shall live with you. And Deuteronomy: If any one among you, uh, if any, if among you, one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient his need, whatever it may be. In his 16,000-word treatise, Edwards essentially argues that if we as Christians, like the Pharisees, think that these passages are, are only about caring for our own people and not strangers and sojourners, then, then we have missed the entire point of Christ's message. Remember that lawyer in, in, in the Gospel of Luke chapter 10, 29, he, desiring to justify himself, says to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And Jesus tells them who his neighbor is. Jesus, in contradiction to their opinions, that the rules of mercy are to be extended to the Samaritans, whom the Jews regarded as impure and heretical. I could, I could honestly just stop here and read this entire treatise from Edwards as our sermon, but I have more to cover. So I'll just leave you with this one excerpt from the beginning of section two regarding our obligation of Christians to perform the duty of charity to the poor. Listen to what Edward says. Where have we any command in the Bible laid down in stronger terms and in a more preemptory, urgent manner than the command of giving to the poor? That's Jonathan Edwards. 
Listen, friends, I can't say it any more clearly than that. This is the mission of mercy. Now, as an example of what it looks like not to love your neighbor as yourself, James, in, in, in chapter 2, gives an, ac- an account of the unequal response when a rich man and a poor man walk into the room. The rich man is shown respect, and the poor man is basically disregarded. Yet we know, we know from Scripture, that God chose those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs to his kingdom. We learn that in James 2.5. Have you ever thought about that? God has chosen the poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs to his kingdom. That's mind-blowing when you think about it. The reason it's mind-blowing is because we want to be part of his kingdom. Of course we do. Yet many of us want nothing to do with the poor. Yet the poor are heirs of his kingdom. Then he goes on in verse 9. He says, if, you know, if, we, if we show partiality, if we just show partiality, we're actually committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. That's right. Showing partiality is a sin. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, oh, oh, but that's just a, a little S sin, not a big S sin. It's not, you know, big S sins are like murder and adultery, you know, stuff, stuff like that. Those are the ones that really matter. Well, I've got news for you, because in the next verse, James says that whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of it all. You say, but, but, but Ray, I don't agree. It's not the same. Well, let's just continue in in verse 11. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. Now, here it is. For judgment without mercy, for judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Friends, mercy is is not optional. Mercy is something that is part of God's very nature. It's something we must show as Christians. He has given us a mission to be merciful. Okay, so we're we're starting to understand this this mercy piece that it's incredibly important to God. But, But what about the sacrifice piece that we read in Matthew 9, 13 this morning? Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Many of us read that passage and think that sacrifice is just this this term that's used in the Old Testament involving lots of animals and and burnt offerings, but but it's way bigger than that. For for many people, including the Pharisees, sacrifice is like a bargaining chip. It's like like saying, I'm going to do something for you so that you owe me something in return. That's, that's how many people think. They, they, they think if I can do enough for God, if I can sacrifice enough time if for, you know, for, for good causes, if I can give enough money like I'm paying it forward, then somehow God will let me into his kingdom because he will owe me for all the good I've done. But that's not how God works. And that's certainly not what God wants. God does not want your spare rituals. He wants you to show mercy. He doesn't want you to show mercy like it's a checkbox on a piece of paper. Check, there we go. My good deed's done for the day. I'm good. No, you're not saved by your good deeds. As Jesus told us, no tree 
No good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit, for each tree is known by its own fruit. The, the, the fruit on the tree doesn't save you. The fruit on the tree shows whether or not the tree is dead. Similarly, mercy should flow out of you because you love God and he showed mercy to you on the cross. That's why we have a mission of mercy. We love because he first loved us. We show mercy because he first showed mercy to us. He hung on a tree to die for you. That's mercy. Listen, you, you, you want to talk about mercy? Let's talk about Jesus Christ coming down in all his glory and giving it all up to come live with the poor. And on judgment day, he's going to separate us into sheep and goats. And, and we don't have you know, a ton of time to get into Matthew 25 today, but, uh, but there was a time when I thought the sheep and goats that, that Jesus was referring to was basically the, the, the sheep was, was everyone who had expressed faith in Christ and the goats were just outsiders that just plainly denied Christ. And certainly that is part of it. But as Charles Spurgeon and others point out, Matthew 25 makes it pretty clear that there are many goats that seem rather shocked that Jesus does not welcome them to his kingdom as sheep. They are imposter goats, pretending to be sheep. In his sermon titled, The Final Separation, Spurgeon notes, observe that they, are, they will be divided readily. It is not everyone who could divide sheep from goats. I suppose, according to your ordinary judgment of goats, you would, readily very, you would very readily distinguish them from sheep. But for one who has traveled in the East, and even in Italy, knows that it takes a somewhat skilled eye to know a certain kind of goat from a certain kind of sheep. They are extremely like each other. To make this point even, even clearer today, we're going to get a little interactive. On the screen behind me, we're going to do an exercise. I'm going to put up some photos, and I want you to tell me whether you think it's a sheep or a goat. And you, I want you to take your best guess. There's, there's, there's no standing here. You've, you've, you've got to give an answer. And then I'm going to tell you the answer for each one. All right, so here we go. Put up your hand if you think it's a sheep. All right, goat. All right, good so far. Okay, next. Sheep, hands up. No hands, good. Goat, lots of hands. Okay, next. Sheep. Goat. It's a goat. Next. Sheep. Goat. It's a goat. Next. Sheep. Goats, it's a sheep. <laughs> Next, sheep, hands up. Oh, now you guys are getting worried. Goats, good, it's a goat. Next, sheep, good. Goats, it's a goat. Three more, sheep. I feel you. Goats. It's a sheep. Sheep. Hands up. Ha <laughs> Goats. It's a goat. All right, last one. Sheep. Okay. Goats. It's a goat. 
For, for some of you, I can tell you you've done a little agriculture in your day, but, but for many of you, you're still shaking your head. But Jesus knows exactly who are his sheep and who are the goats. And so in Matthew 25, starting in verse 35, Jesus describes what the sheep and goats will look like. To the sheep, he says, I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Mercy. Not, well, you didn't swear, so you're good. You didn't get drunk, so you're good. You didn't steal, so you're good. You didn't kill anyone. Great job. You're good. No. Mercy. That's how. Here in Matthew 25, mercy is what sets us apart. To the goats, he says, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they will also answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go in, away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Friends, we are called to show mercy. On judgment day, there will be no mercy for those that show no mercy. Now, please do not hear what I'm please don't hear what I'm not saying. Works of mercy will not save you. There are many proponents of, of the social gospel who think that they're saved by their works. They're not. And if, and if you're not familiar with what I mean by the term the social gospel, it's basically taking a portion of Jesus' teachings and applying them to society, but it's completely devoid of the actual gospel. On the surface, the, so, the social gospel will promote you know, good things like justice and mercy and, and caring for the poor and advocating for equality and so on. But as good as it sounds, it's not actually rooted in the gospel. It, fear, it, it purely focuses on the well-being of society. It's, it's on par with the sacrifice that we, we spoke about earlier. God will owe me for all of the good I've done. Yes, we are called to be merciful to the poor. I think I've made that abundantly clear in my sermon so far. But if, if, the, if the idea of having mercy excludes the message behind the mercy, then, then that's not merciful at all. Because all you've done is filled the body and abandoned the soul. That might be the gospel of this world, but it, but it certainly is not the gospel of Christ. Stated more plainly, any mission of mercy that does not aim to tell people about the good news of Jesus is a counterfeit gospel. It goes back to the idea of, you know, when people say, well, can't I just model Christ through my actions, and because of that, they'll see Christ in me? No, actually you can't. Because all you've done is taken some character traits of Christ Love, mercy, forgiveness, compassion, character traits that are actually true about thousands of people and religions in history, and you've made the word of God completely void by ignoring Christ himself who commanded you, yes, commanded you to go and share the gospel. No wonder Jesus asked in Luke 6, 46, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Listen, friends, if, if you love Jesus with all your heart, then the justice, mercy, 
and humility that, that Micah 6, 8 speaks about will flow out of you because you love him. You're going to do these things because you care about what Jesus cares about and you're one of his sheep. And if you're, you're sitting here listening to me today or, or reading Matthew 25 wondering, you know, am I a sheep or am I a goat? Let me just say this. Goats don't care. Sheep care because the Holy Spirit living inside of them cares. And if this word that I'm speaking right now is convicting because maybe you haven't been as merciful as you would have liked, then when you leave here today, go, go be the sheep that God is calling you to be. Speaking of the mercy of sharing the gospel, I'm going to share a passage with you that, that personally cuts me to the heart. It comes from Proverbs, and it's at Proverbs 24, 11 to 12. It says this. Rescue those who are being taken away to death. Hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. If you say, behold, we did not know this. Does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who keeps watch over your soul know it? And will he not pay, repay man according to his work? How many people do you know that have likely never heard the gospel before? And what have you done about it? Listen, it's not up to you to save a person. That's up to God, but it's up to you to share the gospel. Oh, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just waiting for the right opportunity, we say. And then we, and then we go away and we pray, Lord, please give me an opportunity today to, to share the gospel with my neighbors and my friends and my loved ones and my coworkers and my family. Your family and your neighbors and your coworkers and your loved ones are right there. What, what opportunity are you waiting for? And what is your scriptural basis for, for why you need an opportunity? Why not share it now? May, may I make a suggestion? Instead, instead of praying for opportunities to share the gospel, how about we pray for boldness to share the gospel? Rescue those who are being taken away to death. Hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. If you say, behold, we did not know this, does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Mercy. That, that, is, that is the mission of mercy. If you're, if you're waiting for some sort of special alignment between the sun and the moon and the constellations and Venus and Saturn and Mars so that, that you can share the gospel, then I'm, I'm sorry, but, but that's just a cop-out. That's like the modern-day Jonah hopping into a boat and, and going in the other direction because you don't want to deal with what God has commanded you to do. Do you need to be swallowed up by a giant fish for him to get your attention? If, if your neighbor's house was on fire, would you make an effort to get them out? Would you, would you at least yell fire to make them aware of the present danger? It's with that life and death urgency that we need to be showing mercy to people by sharing the gospel. Because friends, this is a matter of life and death. In October 2019, judge and jury looked on as two people took the stage of a center courtroom. In the defendant's seat sat a former police officer, Amber Geiger. She was a white woman from Dallas who had just been found guilty of killing Botham Jean, a black man who she fatally shot in his own apartment. 
To cut to the chase, Amber testified that, that late one night she accidentally parked on the wrong floor of her apartment building, which was pretty common uh, to the other tenants as well. She then walked into Botham's apartment where the door was slightly ajar, thinking it was her own. Despite her calls to show me your hands, show me your hands, Botham approached her in the dark and she fatally shot him, telling the jury that she thought he was going to kill her. It was an absolute tragedy, one that Amber would have to pay for in prison. Justice had to be served. So, so now, here we are at the end of this court trial. Sentencing had already been, been given. And the 18-year-old Brant Jean, the younger brother of the late Botham, asked the judge if he can take the witness stand. And the judge allows him to do so. He takes the stand and he looks directly at Amber, who's sitting in the defendant's seat. And he starts speaking. And, and what happens next is unprecedented. Instead of verbally attacking Amber, which he had every single right to do, he takes the opportunity in front of judge and jury and the entire courtroom to ask Amber, for, to ask God for forgiveness and to give her life to Christ. He says to her, I forgive you. And I know if you go to God and ask him, he will forgive you too. And as he continues, he says, and I wasn't ever going to say this in front of my family or anyone, but I don't even want you to go to jail. I want the best for you because I know that's exactly what Botham would want you to do. And the best would be to give your life to Christ. Again, I love you as a person and I don't wish anything bad on you. And if that's not enough, Brant does the unthinkable. He turns to the judge and asks for permission to step down from the witness stand and embrace Amber. He says, I don't know if this is possible, but can I please give her a hug? Please? Please? And as Amber's sitting in the defendant's seat, she's saying yes, 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 over and over again. So the, the judge grants permission, and then the two of them walk to the center of the courtroom, and they embrace at length while speaking quietly to each other in front of the entire courtroom, judge, security guards, attorney. People are sobbing in the courtroom. The defense attorney said he'd never seen anything like it in his life. Another attorney said, I can't even talk about it without getting choked up. For all the love and grace that's come out of this, to get here is amazing from just a few people showing grace. Friends, that, that is mercy. Who do you need to show mercy to if they, even if they've wronged you? Our Lord himself said that if you forgive others, then the Father will forgive you. But here's the catch. If you do not forgive others, then neither will your Father forgive you. Have mercy. As we, as we draw toward the end of our time together here today, I have some really bad news and I have some really good news. And in a few moments from now, I'm going to ask you a question that's going to determine if it's really bad news or really good news. You see, no one is above the law. It doesn't, it doesn't matter if you, if you accidentally break the law or you intentionally break the law. Either way, you break the law. And when you break the law, there are consequences. Every single one of us are made in the image of God. And because you're human, you're subject to his law. In the New Testament, Jesus goes on to, to clarify these laws even further. He says, you have heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder, but, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, 
that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Have you ever done any of those things? Ever? And he goes on to say, you have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in her heart, in his heart. Have you ever looked at a woman lustfully or, or, or anyone lustfully that, that wasn't your spouse? Ever? James tells us in 4.17 that whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is a sin. Anyone here today that, that has ever known the right thing to do and failed to do it? As we read earlier in James 2, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of it all. And Romans 3.19 tells us that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world accountable to God. So who's under the law? Everyone. Everyone's under the law. The whole world. But, 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 but you might be thinking, how can this be so? Not everyone has read the Bible before, so how can everyone possibly be under the law? And God's word is clear on this. And in Romans 1.20, we read that God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So people are without excuse. So here's the deal. Each one of us have been issued a subpoena to a court trial. Now, you might be thinking, what are you talking about? I haven't been issued anything. Well, actually, you have. It's, it's right here in this book. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man, Jesus, whom he has appointed. Acts 17, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, good or evil, 2 Corinthians 5. And the subpoena that you've received today says that you're going to be going on trial for breaking God's law. And if you're not acquitted, then I'm not, I'm not going to sugarcoat this for you. The penalty is death Forever. Revelation 20.15 says, If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he will be thrown into the lake of fire. Now, you might be sitting here today saying to yourself, I thought this was a sermon on mercy. This isn't merciful at all. Hold that thought. So here's the question that I spoke about earlier. This is the one, this is the question that's going to determine if I have some really good news or some really bad news for you. How do you plead to breaking God's law? Guilty or not guilty? Let's say for a moment we take the world's approach and we say, we say, we plead not guilty. I mean, you're a good person and you're already righteous enough. You've, you've never taken God's word seriously anyhow. Heck, the world may have even convinced you that, uh, that there is no God since most public institutions teach that we're, we're just a result of random chance anyways. And besides that, as far as you're concerned, you've lived a good life. But besides a couple of blips in your youth, 
You haven't had any major moral failures except, you know, maybe a few swear words here and there, looking at some stuff that you shouldn't have. Maybe you even served at a homeless shelter so that you could get, you know, some check marks on, on your eternal resume. I mean, it's, it's sort of like speeding, right? I mean, if, 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 if everyone's doing it, as long as you're going the flow of traffic and don't get caught, then we're fine, right? Okay, let's, let's, let's go with that. So you enter the courtroom, and as you sit down, the judge takes a seat. But you quickly realize that this isn't any judge. This is the judge, Judge Elohim, the Most High God, the Justice Supreme, the Father, the Great I Am. And seated on his right is his one and only son, Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who the Father loved before the foundation of the world. And instantaneously, the prosecution pulls up everything you've ever done in your life and flashes it before the court. Every evil thought, every dirty little secret, everything you've ever looked at, your motives, your intentions, your selfishness, your greed, your moments of anger, your filthy mouth, your private conversations, everything that you thought you could get away with is right before your eyes. It's evidence. You thought you were a good person. But now that you see the evidence, you're quickly realizing that you're not the great person that you thought you were. In fact, you're really quite bad. Romans 3 is becoming a lot more clear to you right now. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together, they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And you're thinking to yourself, I'm in trouble here. And, and, and you should be worried because, you know what, I have, I have bad news for you. By, by your not guilty plea, you have rejected everything that God has said about you, about himself, about humanity, about his holiness. You've broken his law thousands of times. You've rejected him. And now you're going to get the punishment that you deserve. A life completely devoid of God's presence. Everything good will be gone. In Matthew 10, 33, Jesus says, Whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. That's really, really bad news. And unfortunately for you, there's no reincarnation. What's done is done. There's no do-overs. But wait for a moment. What if... What if your answer here today is different? What if you admit what you've always known, that, that, you're, that you're not perfect? What if today you cry out, Lord, I'm guilty. Please have mercy on me, a sinner. If you were to make that confession, let me tell you what happens. And, and I, I know because this subpoena, the word of God right here that you received, also comes with a forgiveness clause. And if you think that the mercy that Amber received from Brant was amazing, then, th then this is going to blow your mind. You see, over 2,000 years ago, the Justice Supreme, the Father, the Great I Am, he knew you were guilty, but he loved you anyways. He knew that you couldn't enter his kingdom because he is holy and you are not. And then the unthinkable happened. 
Instead, in, instead of pouring out his wrath on you, the wrath that you completely and utterly deserve, his son Jesus, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who knew no sin, stood up, looked you in the eyes, and came down from his throne to stand where you stood. He embraced you and said, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These, these things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. And then he says this. Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. And then before a crowded court, he exchanged his kingly crown for a crown of thorns and became your substitute. For our sake, God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for your sin so that you could be made right with God through Christ. Well, witnesses just, just stood there trying to comprehend what was happening. The, the wrath of the Father was poured out on him instead of you. We read in Matthew 27, then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters and they gathered the whole battalion before him and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand and kneeling before him, they mocked him saying, hail, king of the Jews. And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of his robes and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. Jesus Christ, the King of Kings, God himself, bore your sin and shame. He took the punishment that you deserve. He gave up everything so that you could live. Mercy, that is mercy. Like the, like the parable of the Good Samaritan, Jesus became the Good Samaritan for you. Your sin left you beaten down, bloody, and ready for dead. But the Father saw you in your helpless state and filled with compassion, sent his one and only Son to rescue you. And praise God, because on the third day, he raised Jesus up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And friends, that is really, really good news. If you're here today or watching online or have, and have never come to terms with your guilt and you've never asked the Father for mercy, I plead with you to do it. Don't wait until tomorrow. You don't, you don't even know if you have tomorrow. You may have been coming to this church for, for 10 years now and you haven't truly given your life to Christ. Following Jesus is the most important decision you will ever make. And you can talk with Pastor Jude afterwards. You could talk with me. You could talk with one of the elders, one of the staff. Just talk with someone. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God.
It, it, it really is that simple. Ask for mercy. Put your faith in Jesus. Repent of your sins. When you do that, the Father will give you the Holy Spirit who will help guide you for the rest of your life and will help you live out his commandments. And as we learn today, one of his commandments is to be merciful as the Father is merciful. Do that. That is the mission of mercy that each one of us is called to live out. Let's pray. Father God, you are holy and we are not. You have shown us immeasurable mercy and so we too are called to show mercy. Help us to do that today in our homes, in our communities, in our workplaces, in our schools, in our families, in all of our lives. May we show mercy and forgiveness because you have shown mercy and forgive us to us. Father, use us for your glory. We, your servants, desire to serve you with all of our hearts. In the mighty name of Jesus, amen.